We used to wait. I don't know if you remember this. It was just a couple decades ago. We used to have to wait for things. <laughs> for example, when I was a kid, I was a pen pal with a friend who lived five states away. And I used to sit down with a pen and paper and write him a letter. Do you guys remember when I used to write outwards? And I would fold it up and put it in an envelope and put it in the mailbox and put that little red flag up on the mailbox and then... I would wait, first for the mail truck to arrive, then for him to bring it to some facility where it would get on some other truck and travel five states away where my pen pal friend would open it and read it, and when he got around to it, he would sit down and write a letter, and the process would begin again, and days, sometimes weeks would go by before I got his response. Nowadays, that very same person, if he and I wanted to communicate, I could type something into my device and get this, I could hit send on my device and wherever he is on planet earth, five states away or around the world, within the very second of me hitting that send button, he would receive my note. We used to wait. Parents of college students used to wait till the end of the semester to hear how the grades were going. They would come home at Christmas time or something, and they would say, so how did the semester go? And they'd say, well, Mom, I got two Bs and a C and an A minus. Nowadays, the professor posts a grade on some software, and the parent can track the entire semester how the student is doing. So if a student takes a quiz on a Tuesday morning at 10 a.m., the parents, however many states away, could find out what the grade was by 11 a.m. We used to wait. We used to wait to celebrate Christmas. There was this season on the church calendar called Advent, and in some traditions, they wouldn't even sing any Christmas carols until Christmas Eve. They would sing Advent hymns with phrases like, Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Well, now, before the Thanksgiving dishes are dry from the dishwasher, we are singing Christmas songs, we are putting up decorations, we're celebrating Christmas early. We used to wait. It seems that all of our technologies, all of our lifestyles, all of our systems over the past couple of decades are designed in the ruthless elimination of waiting. We hate to wait. I'm chief among people who hates to wait. You can ask Nancy. She tells, she'll tell you how impatient I am. But sometimes God makes us wait. And in the waiting, we can experience a lot of discomfort, a lot of bewilderment, even doubts. This is where we find John the Baptist today. It's a perfect reading during Advent. And I want us to look at the situation that John was in and learn from him, learn from the scripture of what God might have for us in the waiting. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11, beginning with the second verse, to find out how this went for John and what word God might have for all of us. So let's look at the details of this story again. Matthew chapter 11, beginning with the second verse. It says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples to him and said, 
Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Here's John the Baptist in prison. The historian Josephus tells us that John the Baptist was in prison for as much as a whole year during Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry on earth was only three years long, so he was out there in the communities. He was setting the captives free. He was healing the sick. He was proclaiming the truth. He was doing all these awesome things. And John was in prison for a full third of Jesus' ministry. So here's John in prison sending this note. Maybe it's a handwritten note. I'm not sure. Maybe it's just verbal through his disciples. And he says to Jesus, are you the one? While he's in prison, all these things are happening outside of prison, John begins to wonder, Jesus, are you really the one? Now, this should really surprise us. John the Baptist asked this question. John the Baptist, of all people, John the Baptist knew that Jesus was the one. John the Baptist spent his whole life, his whole ministry out there in the wilderness proclaiming the prophecies of the Old Testament saying, Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming, prepare the way, make straight his path. And then when Jesus arrived on the scene near the banks of the Jordan, you know what John said about him? He said to everybody who could hear him, he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John knew that he was the one. John had the amazing privilege of baptizing Jesus in the Jordan. He dipped him beneath the water. He held our Lord's head in his hand when it came out of the waters of the Jordan. And as water was still dripping from his hair and from his face, John the Baptist heard the booming voice of the Father from heaven saying, this is my son, in whom I am well pleased. John knew long before that amazing day at the banks of the Jordan. Scripture tells us that while John was in his mother's womb, when Mary walked in the door with Jesus in her womb, it says that John leapt in his mother's womb. John knew even from the womb that Jesus was the one. Yet, in prison, while he's waiting there, he sends word to Jesus with this audacious question. Are you the one? And then it must have been particularly painful for Jesus to hear the second half of the phrase. Or should we look for someone else? How did John the Baptist go from proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah to sending this word to him. Well, he was in a faith crisis because he was forced to wait in prison. The fulfillment of the promises of God through Jesus Christ weren't happening right now. So John doubted. He was bewildered. He was confused. He's probably offended by what's going on. And maybe some of you have been in situations where it's difficult or where there's a diagnosis or where things aren't resolving or there's joblessness or whatever the situation. And you're praying to God and you're saying, Lord, make this stop. Jesus, are you who you said you are? Are you the one? Or should I look for something else? Should I, 
turn my attention and my hopes onto something else, Jesus. Because you're not exactly operating on my timeline. How does Jesus respond? <laughs> this message has been sent through John. Are you the one or should we look for someone else? And how does Jesus respond to that, to John? How does Jesus respond to us when we say things like that? Look with me at verse 4. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. John would have known right away what Jesus is doing here. People in this time, they used to speak to each other with scriptural references. You could say the beginning of a psalm, and someone would know that you were really referencing the rest of it. And Jesus, it seems, is playing with some of the themes from Isaiah that John the Baptist knew all too well. John the Baptist especially would have known Isaiah chapter 61, where it says, "...the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor." to proclaim freedom for the captives, binding up of the brokenhearted, recovery of sight for the blind. And so Jesus is sending back this message through his disciples to this question, are you really the Messiah? And he says, you go tell John all of these things. And he starts bullet pointing the fulfillment of the promises from Isaiah. But there's something interesting happening in Jesus' message back to John. He names good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, but he omits something from the list. Freedom for the prisoners. Here's John in prison wondering, Jesus, are you I've been telling people you're going to come and release those who have been imprisoned unjustly, and now you're here, and here I am, imprisoned unjustly. Are you really the one? And what Jesus is saying in what he's not saying here, he's saying to John, yes, I am the one you know full well, John, but you are going to have to wait for now. You're going to have to wait for all the fulfillments of all the promises that you know full well are true in me. And here, John the Baptist in prison in this story, it occurs to me that right here in this moment, John the Baptist is a picture of Advent. Do you want to understand what Advent is all about? Look at John in prison. John knew full well that Messiah had come. He's, he's come. We know this. We proclaim this in our Christmas carols. He's come in the form of a baby. He's come to save us from our sins, to grow up, to die on a cross, to rise again. We believe that he's come. He's my Lord and he's my Savior. But we're also sitting here wondering, why hasn't he come back yet? Why hasn't he come to fulfill all the promises? Why hasn't he come back in glory yet? We find ourselves between the already and the not yet. That's what Advent waiting is all about. I believe that you are the one. And I'm waiting for you to come again. This is John in prison, and this is all of us in this broken and fallen world. Jesus, you said you're the Prince of Peace. Why is there so much war going on in the world? 
That's a good Advent prayer. But oftentimes we find ourselves, like John, bewildered, confused, in a crisis of faith, maybe doubting that he really is who he said he is. Maybe we begin to turn our attention. Maybe I should look for something else who can give me more immediate results. I'm offended by a God who doesn't heal this person in pain who I'm asking him to heal. But look the way Jesus ends his message back to John in verse 6. Jesus anticipates this, and he's speaking right to John, and he's speaking right to all of us. In verse 6, he says, And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. See, what he's saying here is, I know this is bewildering. I know this is confusing. I know this is causing you to doubt that I'm making you wait for your prayers to be answered. But if you can move past the offense of it, if you can move past the confusion and the bewilderment, there's a blessing in here for you. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me, you see. So what's the blessing? What's the blessing in the waiting? Maybe that's what you're wondering right now. What, really, pastor, you're telling me just to wait in this hard situation in my life? There's a blessing in the waiting? Well, there was another person in the New Testament who was also imprisoned for Jesus. His name was Paul, and kind of, I can't wait to get to heaven and tease these guys about it, but Paul handled his imprisonment a little better than John did. <laughs> Paul had a lot to say about his imprisonment. He had a lot to say about the blessing in the waiting, the blessing in the suffering. He moved past the offense of it and looked for the blessing. Look what he says in Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. This is John writing in prison. And he says this. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. The endurance is different than just patience. Endurance is getting through something in hopes of what's on the other side. Endurance produces character. Ah, character. Maybe there's something in me. Maybe there's something in my character that God wants to be doing while he's making me wait for the results of my prayers. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit which has been given to us. God's love has been poured into our hearts no matter our circumstance. God's love has been poured into our hearts in the waiting, in the imprisonment, in the unanswered prayers. God's love is being poured in. He's doing something in us that otherwise wouldn't have been possible if He just gave the blessing right away. I've been trying over the last couple of years to change the way I pray when something's going wrong, when God is having me wait, when something is uncomfortable in my life, I used to always just pray, Lord, make it stop. Lord, take it away. But I've been through enough experiences to realize that he does things in me and even through me in the pain, in the suffering, in the waiting that otherwise wouldn't have happened in me. So now I pray, I try to pray this. I say, Lord, I want you to make it stop. But don't make it stop until you've done in me 
what you're trying to do in me. You love me enough to discipline me, to bring me through suffering, to produce endurance, to produce character, and to produce hope in me. Lord, make it stop, but don't make it stop until you've done these things in me or even through me. I heard testimony a couple of years ago from a young man. He was born into a loving family, a Christian family, and he had a couple of siblings, and their mom had another baby, another sibling brought in to the household. And this young child was born with some developmental disabilities, and it was really hard. It was bewildering and confusing. And they were all praying. They were on their knees saying, Lord, will you heal our little brother? Will you heal him? And they kept loving him anyway. And as he grew up, he was loving them in his own special way. But they kept praying, Lord, why aren't you healing him? We're praying earnestly for healing. We believe you for healing. And they waited and they waited. And this young man was about to go off to college. And he was looking around at his family and all the love that they shared, and he realized their prayers for healing were being answered. God never healed the little brother, but the young man realized he was healing all of them through the little brother. God never healed him physically, but they healed, he healed them emotionally. Lord, don't make this problem stop until you've done in me what you want to do in me. Now I realize this is kind of a hard message to hear. Pastor David said between services, he says, you had a little humor at the beginning, but the rest just wrecked us. (laughs) I know, and the pastors know, that you all, we all, go through seasons like this that are longer than we'd like them to be. And I know some of you are in seasons like that right now, and it might be kind of hard to hear this. And if that's you, if you just can't wait anymore, if you just can't, pray this prayer that God's doing something in and through you, if it's just too hard, then there's an invitation in here for us to simply lean on, to rely on the one who endured perfectly for us. Jesus. That night in the garden when he said, Lord, can you make it stop? Will you take this cup from me? Yet not my will, but yours. He surrendered. He was not offended by it, right? He surrendered, saying, what's on the other side of this? And the next day, as Jesus was forced to carry his own cross, as he took all those steps for that whole journey, all the way to the cross, every step that he took, every bloody, painful step where he was being mocked and ridiculed and punished for sins he never committed, every step he could have said, Father, make it stop. But he endured, he kept going through it because God was doing something in and through him that would bless and change the world forever. 
you would go to the cross and die in our place and rise again. So if it's too hard even for you to pray, Lord, what's the blessing and the waiting? Just fix your eyes on him who endured for us all. While we wait for his return, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let us lean on him who endured for us. Amen.